0: Some Sunday morning, we just have to do worship through the whole entire service, amen. We're in Philippians chapter 2, preaching our way through the book of Philippians and seeing the Apostle Paul be a living example to us of how to have joy in the most difficult of life circumstances. How many of you have been through difficult things in life? Amen. The people who are not raising their hand are scaring me because I want to know what you're doing right. But all of us go through difficult things in life, and Paul's going through a difficult patch here. He's lost his liberty. He's been arrested. He's under house arrest. He's got Roman centurions leading him around from place to place to give testimony of, about his behavior in the preaching of the gospel. He's got religious leaders who are plotting, planning, and greasing the wheels to have him executed and killed and out of the way. And through all of it, he's not bitter, he's not angry, he's not resentful, he's, he's not accusatory. He has joy to the point where he writes this letter to the Philippian church, and it is the epistle of joy. And so no matter what we go through, we need to learn to have the joy of the Lord in our lives. And Paul's a living example of that here. I'm going to thank God for the word this morning. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18 of chapter 2. And then we're going to jump in. Father, we thank you this morning for the word of God. We thank you this morning for this treasure we have called the scripture. Sixty six books that provide a, a road map and a blueprint and, and answers to life's questions. Father, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit that the word would come alive to us, that these truths would come alive to us and that you would teach us how to have joy no matter what's going on in us or around us. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. There's a lot in those few verses here that Paul's showing to us, but he starts off by saying, Hold fast to the word of life. And of course, Jesus is the word, the Bible is the word, and he is in fact telling us to hold on to scripture. That's the simplistic understanding of this, but there's more. Paul is telling us to hold fast. Now, I want you to understand there's different ways to hold on to things. You, you can hold, you know, with a real tight grip. You can hold with a loose grip. Maybe you could just throw it in your pocket. You can put it on your desk. But if you have something valuable, you need to hold on tight to it. You know, most of us hold on to our phones too tightly. You ever see people get separated from their phones and they begin to come unglued? Separation anxiety from your phone. Well, so, sometimes we hold on too tight to things that are not important, but there are things in our lives that are important that we need to hold on tight to. Now, we can have a loosey-goosey grip. We can have it just, ah, you know, where is it, you know. And and, and what happens when we do that is often we lose what we should have held on tight to. We need to have the grip, the same grip that the woman with the issue of blood had when she grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment, amen, She she wasn't just like, oh, you know, Jesus, and put her hand. No, she grabbed a hold of him, and she held on. She had a death grip. Why? Because she knew in her heart that he was her only hope, and, and that somehow she had to connect with him, so she held on tight. And I want you to get that imagery in the theater of your mind, that tight grip, that death grip, holding on when Paul says here, hold fast to the word of life. Now, in its simplicity, of course, that means the scripture we're going to dig in a little deeper here today. What's Paul telling us to hold on to? Number one, Paul is telling us to hold on to Jesus. You and I, above everything else we hold on to, well, I hold on to my health and I hold on to my mind and i hold on to my job and i hold on to my finances and i hold on to my relationships great good that's wonderful but if we don't hold on tight to jesus and make him number one in our lives all of those other things are going to eventually come unglued you can't have health and happiness and solid relationships without a tight grip on jesus We've got to hold on to him. Jesus was the word made flesh. He is the word. When we preach the word of God, we are preaching the revelation, the illumination of the risen Christ. From cover to cover, the Bible shows us from Genesis to Revelation who Jesus is and what he means to us. The Old Testament is filled with messianic prophecies about who was to come, and Jesus fulfilled them all. The New Testament is all about Jesus. Back to the book of Revelation where he comes again for the church and to rule and reign on the earth. Come on. The word is all about the word. We've got to have a tight grip on it. You know, many times in life we go through trials, we go through persecutions, and sometimes just life loosens our grip on the Lord. Maybe you can think of a time where you were closer to Jesus than you are right now. Maybe you can think of a time where you were more excited about your relationship with him. I know I've been serving the Lord since I'm 14 years old. It's hard sometimes to keep the the fire and the passion in any relationship. And the longer we walk with him, sometimes the looser our grip gets upon him. So I say to you today, how's your grip on Jesus today? Are you holding tight to him? Is he the center of your life? Is he on the throne of your heart? If not, grab a hold of him and grab tight like the woman with the issue of blood and purpose not to loosen up or let go until you fall into his arms for eternity at the end of this life. Jesus will help us through the trials, through the persecution, through the darkness. Anybody notice it's dark out there? Anybody notice the enemy's going for broke? Broke. He's pushing all the lines, blurring all the lines, attacking all the institutions, coming against everything that's righteous. He's, you know, and, and, and it's an all-out assault. Why? Because his time is short. But that's not time for us to loosen our grip. It's time for us to hold tighter. So how's your grip on Jesus today? Take a look at it. Evaluate it and adjust it if necessary. Number two, Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. So that means holding to Jesus, but it also means holding to the written word of God. Now, you might be sitting there and say, I got up on a Sunday morning. I, I, I got dressed. I put clothes on. I look presentable. So you could tell me in church to read my Bible. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm going to tell you to read your Bible. Listen, as Christians, we never graduate from being students of the word. As students, we go through school and we graduate. We go to college. We set a course of study. We graduate, and it's over. How many after you graduated, say, high school or college, you've never studied for a test? I mean, you never wrote a paper. Anybody just done? Done. I remember when I took my last test, Lewis. Done. When it comes to our faith, when it comes to our Christianity, when it comes to our growth in the Lord, we never quit becoming students of the word. You you say, do you you still take tests? Yeah, I take two a week on Wednesday and Sunday. That's my test. And I better make sense or, you you know, I'm not that far away. You can get me from there. So we've got to hold on to the word of God. We've got to hold fast to it. All 66 books of the Bible are divinely inspired. Amen. Let me say that again for you dense people out there. Because I've come across some dense people who said, I don't want to hear you preach from the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. I don't want to hear you preaching from the New Testament. That is the wrong thinking. All 66 books from Genesis to Revelation are inspired by God. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, I'm so glad you asked. 2 Timothy 3.16 puts it this way, all scripture, say all, all "All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, all of it. it. And so we need to take in the full counsel of God. We need to not just read our favorite verses and our little cliches, or maybe you got one of those things on your desk for the scripture of the day, boom, and you read your little scripture, oh, that was one of my favorite ones. (laughs) We've got to get in the whole counsel of God's word. That's why we preach wherever the Holy Spirit leads us out of the New Testament, out of the Old Testament. It's all the word of God. The entire Bible is valid, relevant, and applicable to today. Isn't it amazing how applicable the Word of God is that's been thousands of years old, yet we bring it to the pulpit, and the Holy Spirit brings it alive, and it means something to us, and it speaks right to the situation we're living in at the moment. That's the Word of God. (laughs) Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says, Do not think, Jesus is speaking here, Do not think that I came to abolish the law, the commandments, the Old Testament, or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The word of God's not going anywhere. The word of God will stand forever. Oh, well, it's irrelevant. It's old-fashioned. We're modern. We're we're sophisticated. We have science. We don't need this. Superst- it's not going anywhere. It's going to stay. It's going to stand. It's going to be relevant. It's going to be the blueprint and the roadmap for living. It's going to have answers to the questions of life in it that will answer us and not deceive us. Do you know the scriptures are going to outlast everything we know? Heaven and earth are going to pass away. That, that's pretty much. You say, well, when can I stop studying the Bible? When heaven and earth pass away. Then we'll be with Jesus and he can teach us the word because he is the word. Amen. But the Word of God is powerful and important. It is something we need to hold fast to. We hold fast to Jesus. We hold fast to the Word. And number three, what Paul is inferring here is that we hold fast to the gospel message that saved us. If you're taking notes today, write down number three, the gospel The gospel is not just a vehicle that gets us into the kingdom, gets us into the church, gets us to, you know, be part of the family of God. The gospel is a message that we need to hold central in our lives every day that we live. It's not, you know, many of us see the gospel, well, you know, I, I believe the gospel, I accepted Jesus, and now, you know, I've moved on from that. We never move on from the gospel. Because once we move on from the gospel, you know, we tend to lose our, our bearings and we start adding things to the gospel that God never intended for us to add. Oh, you know, well, you know, I got saved and I accepted Jesus and I'm born again, but now I need works or now I need ministry or now I need results. Oh, I'm preaching now. And there's a lot of churches out there where you need results. You need to get to work. You need to do things. You need to let me see your resume. Let me see your workload. What are you doing? You're going to lose your salvation if you don't get busy. And that's what happens when we drift away from the truth of the gospel message. We've got to hold on Tight to it. The gospel message centers around our personal acceptance of Jesus and our belief that he died and rose again. Listen to Romans 10:9, one of my favorite texts of Paul's writings. That is, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. That's the gospel that you confess. I believe Jesus came. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. He died for me, and I accept him as my personal savior. That's at the point where we receive the free gift of salvation. And from that point forward, we've got to hold on to that. You see, I'm not saved by my works. I'm not saved by my resume. I'm not saved by my performance but I'm saved by grace through faith. Listen to Ephesians 2 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God. See, this type of understanding of the simplicity of the gospel will short-circuit all the legalism that religious systems try to put on people. And it is legalism to think that our works are going to, well, God, you know, I did this and I read my Bible and I and I prayed and I and I joined this club and this group and I'm involved in ministry. And can you bless me now? It's not our performance. It's not our workload. It's not our accomplishments. It's his grace. I want to say something to some of you out there who are striving, who are working really hard or feeling rejected by God, feeling like, you know, it's not working for you. Relax. In fact, say it with me. Relax. One more time. Some of you didn't relax. Relax. He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. It's his amazing grace. It's his amazing love. It's the free gift of salvation, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there's no room to change the gospel or enhance the gospel or modernize the gospel. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We don't have to make it seeker-friendly. We don't have to repackage it. We don't have to, you know, somehow advertise. No, we need to leave the gospel in its simple state and not mess with it at all. Jesus died. Jesus rose. And if you believe that, you're saved. Amen. Don't add anything to it. That's a dangerous thing to do. There are churches that, well, yeah, that's the way you come in, you know, but you got to have this and you got to have that and you got to be baptized in our church and you got to be immersed and you can't be sprinkled, you better be dunked and you got to speak in tongues and you got to have the Holy Ghost and you got to have two miracles and you got, are you kidding me? That's religion. That's works. And that's not the gospel. And when we add or subtract anything to the gospel, look, it doesn't need to be repackaged. It doesn't need to be sugar-coated. It needs to be preached the way the Bible says it. And it has the power of God to bring people to salvation. Listen to Galatians 1, 7 through 9, which is not just another account, but there are some, listen, Paul speaking here, who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul's saying, even if I did it in my group here, or any angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what has been preached to you, he is to be accursed. Now that word accursed is Doesn't sound good. And if you look at it in the Greek, it's anathema. And it means a person who is detested, loathsome, and assigned to damnation. Could, could you be any more stronger in saying, basically, Paul's saying, if you mess with the gospel, if you add to it or take away to it or pollute it or pervert it or change it in any way, you're accursed, you're detestable, loathsome, and assigned to damnation. Listen to verse 9. As we have said before, even now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Hold on. With both hands, like the woman with the issue of blood, to the hem of Jesus, hold on to the simplicity of the gospel. Always remember it's by grace that you were saved through faith. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it, and don't add anything to it. (laughs) Woo! I feel so relaxed now. I'm going to go take a nap. I'll be back for point two. No, I'm just kidding. Paul moves on here. He says to hold fast to the word of life. We've expounded on the implications of that. But he moves on here, and he lists a very personal reason for why he wants the Philippians to hold on tight to the word of life. He wants them to hold on tight, and it's partially for his own benefit. Look what he says here. So that in the day of Christ, I will have I will have reason, listen, to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, guys, I've invested a lot in you. Anyone have children here today? Raise your hand if you have children. Have you invested a lot in your children? Even if they're little, you've invested so much in them already. Hours of sleep and comfort and silence. We invest so much in our children because we love them more than we love ourselves. And Paul is looking at the churches here that the Holy Spirit had birthed and he had labored in as his spiritual offspring. He's like, you guys are like my children. I love you that much. I'm willing to lay my life down you, for you, but I, I want you to stay true to the gospel message so that when I die and go to, in front of the Lord, it'll be a blessing to me that I didn't waste my time and energy sowing into a field that produced nothing. Now, how many understand that when we sow, when we labor, when we put our time and energy into someone or something, we, we would like to see a return? Anyone? No, we just had kids and we threw them out. Good luck to them. No, you love them to the day you die, and you, you, you'll give your last breath and your last dollar to help them. And that's the, that's the heart that Paul had here. And I want to say that's a good thing, and I understand what he's doing here. He's trying to motivate the, the Philippians to, hey, I've invested so much in you. You know I love you. Please, I'm going to be gone soon. Keep the faith. Run the race. I want to see you in heaven someday. I don't want one of you to be lost and go back to the world. And that's a good thing. Now, this is a place in Scripture where Paul's expressing a personal desire. And while that desire to see them saved so that he, you know, can not feel like he wasted his time and energy in this life is a valid thing. But we've got to be careful not to draw any theological conclusions here. The point is this. Some can conclude from what Paul is saying here that his reward and his standing before the Lord hinges on how others responded to his presentation and preaching of the gospel. Well, if I, you know, guys, don't don't blow this. I don't want to have wasted or run in vain or labored in vain. I don't want to get to heaven and have no reward. And I understand he's trying to motivate them, but don't draw the wrong conclusion there. Our reward is not based on people's response our reward is not based on results. Our reward is based on our obedience to the call of God on our lives. God has always shown to, that man is blessed, what, by his obedience, not about results. And I don't want you to think from this scripture like, well, Paul's like, Man, if these guys don't serve God when I'm gone, I'm going to have no reward. I'm going to show up in heaven and God's going to be like, what'd you do, Paul? You were totally unsuccessful. Do you see what they're doing down there? That's wrong theology. That's wrong thinking. God blesses us for our obedience, not on our results. God's servants are judged on how they obey the call of God on their lives. You and I could do everything God has asked us to do. We could do it with the right heart with all our strength, and people don't respond, and we still get the same reward in heaven. Come on, this is, this is going to be helpful for some of us because some of us feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm not making an impact. No one's being changed around me. It seems like my light is not penetrating the darkness. Look, I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands, but all of us have felt like that at times. Pastor Mike, all of us as pastors, we feel like that at times. I'm pouring out, I'm working hard, I'm doing my best, and and there's no response, there's no results. So, is my reward still in heaven? Absolutely, because it's based on obedience, not results. Listen, if God's servants were judged and rewarded solely on the results they obtained, all the prophets would be in trouble. You know, the prophets came in the Old Testament and they preached the word of God that he put in their mouth. And you know what the people's response were? Stone them, kill them, drive them out. And they did. They stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets. You look at that. Were the prophets successful? Yes. They were obedient to bring the word of God to a stiff neck and rebellious generation. The response to the word of God was not their problem. The reward didn't hinge on it. You know, think about Noah preached to that generation while building the ark. He he preached for a hundred years with no converts. How's church attendance, Noah? Goose egg. Make any converts? Goose egg. Man, you should get a different job. You're not good at this ministry stuff, Noah. No, he did what God told him to do. And when the rain came, he and his family alone were saved from the flood. His reward was not based on people's response. His reward was based on his obedience to the call of God on his life. Paul was going to be rewarded whether or not any of the Philippians did the right things when he was gone. He wanted to motivate them to do the right things. But don't think for a moment our reward hinges on results because it sits squarely on obedience. Are you being obedient today to what God has asked you to do? Are you being obedient to live the gospel and love those around you and be a light in the darkness? If you are, God will reward you. Amen. It's not results. It's obedience. So let's move on here in the text. Paul's very aware at this point of the, the trajectory of where his ministry and his life is heading. He knows that most likely he's going to be martyred at the hands of the Romans. Now, this is an interesting thing. He keeps a a cheerful heart. He keeps his joy up, and, and he's hopeful. But at the same time, he can see that writing on the wall. And he knows. In verse 17, he gives us a clue that he knows, and he says this. But even if I am being poured out, say poured out, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. Paul saw the sacrificial suffering of his life as a joy to be shared with the churches. Because he saw it as furthering the gospel and galvanizing the churches and proving that Jesus was not just a religious figure that they talked about, but someone who was worth dying for think about this. People will say, oh, you know, Jesus was just a a charlatan or this. He never rose from the dead. His disciples just started a business and started a church. So listen, why in the world would they, each one of them, all 12 of the disciples died a martyr's death? John was the only one who, who, who died a natural death, but they boiled him in oil first and it didn't kill him. So they send him to Patmos, and he received the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, and then God took him. But all the rest of them, they were speared, they were beheaded, they were crucified upside down, they were skinned alive. Study the apostles and how they died. Why would anyone die a horrible death like that if they didn't believe with every fiber of their being that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, that he did rise from the grave on the third day, and that he was worth dying for? (laughs) <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Paul knows, I'm, I'm on my way out. And yet he sees it as a joy to be shared. Now, I want to point something out about Paul that shows his level of spiritual maturity. He never faked his concern for the souls of others, even those who were persecuting him. Paul was not concerned with just with the Philippian church, just with the Roman church. Paul wasn't just concerned with the apostles and those who had walked with Jesus, Paul was concerned about the Roman centurions that chained him up and walked him around. Paul was concerned about the the religious leaders and the political leaders that he stood before and testified in chains to. He would preach the gospel to them to such a point that some of them would, you know, they would be like, man, take it easy. I'm about to believe what you're saying here. Some of them would say, are you trying to convert me? Because it's working. Paul loved people who were persecuting him. I want you to think about that for a second. That's Christian maturity. Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. I bet you that's no one's favorite scripture. Oh, I wrote that on an index card. It's on my mirror. No, you didn't. That's not the one you wrote on the index card because our flesh doesn't like that. Pray for my enemies. Pray for those who. I mean, like, think about that. That really grates against the flesh. But here's Paul doing what Jesus said to do. Here's Paul looking a lot like Jesus. Jesus was being nailed to a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's Paul witnessing and loving and genuinely caring for the souls of those people around him who are persecuting him, who are imprisoning him, and who would eventually kill him. That's Christian maturity. And that's what God wants each of us to come to the place where we can do that, where we're not so fleshly and carnal that we can't see the big picture, that we can see the importance of people's souls is more than the importance of our own comfort and liberty and freedom. I know this is a hard word, but it's a word that the church needs to hear in this hour because persecution is around us, it's coming, and the, the, the whole demeanor of the world is changing. I'm preaching on Wednesday night through Matthew 24, and you're going to see what happens in the last days as the church is persecuted by false religious systems and the governmental systems, and Christians turn against Christians. If you can make it out on Wednesday night, I encourage you, you won't be sorry. It'll be something that invigorates your faith. So here's Paul, and he's loving those people who are persecuting him. Now, I want to say something. Some people can be really sweet and charming with you until they figure out they're not going to get what they want from you. Come on, amen. Oh, you're so wonderful. You're so great. You're my favorite. Until they figure out, well, you're not, they're not going to. And, and then all of a sudden, it gets ugly. And that's the real heart, amen. All of us have known people like that, and they were so sweet, and then all of a sudden they reveal. And listen, Paul reveals that, you know, he knows what they're doing, and and he loves them anyway. He's not being nice to the centurions, so maybe they'll let him go. He's not being respectful. He stands before these leaders. Oh, excellent, so-and-so. It is my great uh, privilege to stand before you today. I'm reading that. I'm going, are you kidding me? You know, could you imagine standing? And he's being sincere. I don't know what I would say if I was standing in front of, in front of some stuffed suit who is, you know, I mean, like, hey, you know, I, I hope I would be pastoral. But I'm not sure. And here's Paul being sincere. Wow. That's maturity. That's love. That begins to look a lot like Jesus. Paul is at the place in his life here at the end of his life where he is embracing selflessness and he has a disregard for his own life and he's starting to look a lot like Jesus. The servant has begun to look like the master. Now, notice Paul uses this imagery here about being poured out as a drink offering. And he says, you know, but but even if I am being poured out, I realize what's going on, guys. I don't know if you know it yet, but I know where this is headed. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So he uses that imagery of a drink offering. Now, the Jews and the Gentiles of that day understood exactly what he meant When he said a drink offering because they understood the sacrificial system. Now, a drink offering was an offering that was made is also called a libation where they would pour something valuable out before God. They would pour out water. How many know if you're in the desert and you're pouring out water, that's a sacrifice? Amen. You could take that water and make it into grape Kool-Aid and it's the best substance on the face of the earth. And they pour out water, and they would pour out wine, and they would pour out oil as a libation, as an offering, and and they understood what Paul was saying here by using that imagery. And you got to understand something about a drink offering. They usually weren't offered all by themselves. A drink offering was almost always a complementary offering to a more significant living sacrifice. So they would offer the blood of a lamb or a bull or goats or whatever. And then that was the, that was the sin offering. That was the more significant offering. Then they would pour out the libation as a complement to it. And Paul, with this imagery here, is saying, I recognize the greatest offering that was ever poured out was the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the blood sacrifice that destroyed the power of sin. That's the greatest offering. But my life is a compliment to that offering that I'm willing to be poured out to reinforce, to reestablish, to show the worth of Jesus' offering. Listen, and this is the heart that we need to have. We can't just sit back and say, well, I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done, but I'm going to do my thing and live my life. The Bible says if we try to save our life, we'll lose it. But if we lose it for his sake, we'll find it. Paul understood this principle, and that's why he could rejoice, because I'm being poured out as a compliment to what Jesus has done to affirm that I'm willing to lay my life down because of what Jesus has done for me so that all people will see how worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Such a beautiful picture there that I hope you're grabbing hold of today this gospel that Paul preached would be uh, sealed with his own blood, and he saw it as a joyful thing. Now, he finishes off the passage here in verse 18 by encouraging the people of Philippi in that church there to reciprocate, you know, what he's putting out, his love, his offering, his life, and all this stuff. He wants them to reciprocate what he's doing by loving him back. Now, let me read this here. It says in 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul's saying, I've loved you. I'm pouring my life out for you. I'm sharing my joy with you. I'm writing this epistle to you. I'm loving you. Hey, guys, love me back. Does it feel good if you're loving to someone if they don't love you back? It feels horrible. You loving, you're understanding, you make you take abuse. Anyone take abuse? Amen. John, put your hand down. Your wife's right there. <laughs> Donna, hit him. But you pour out your love and someone doesn't reciprocate. That hurts. And Paul's saying there again, very humanly, very transparent, you know, I've loved you guys and I've poured my life out, you know, reciprocate, do the same thing. Love me back, pour your life out, follow my example. Now, the joy and affection that he's extending to them, uh, he wants them to extend back to him, and that's, that's, that's right. Now, I want to say something about the, the relationship between those of us in the church. Shepherds who love their flocks and flocks who love their shepherds back compound the joy that's in the body of Christ. Amen? I hope you can tell by the way I preach that I love you. You say, well, some of the stuff you preach is pretty hard. That's because I love you. Amen? It's not loving to tell someone something that soothes their ears and doesn't get to the situation, amen. It's not loving to tell a sinner, oh, you know what, everybody goes to heaven. It's not loving to tell someone who's in immorality or sexual sin or in false religion that, oh, you know, all roads lead to God. That's not loving. The Christian gets billed as being narrow minded and judgmental for telling the truth and and being unloving and judgmental. But the truth is the person who tells a lie to a person who's deceived is the most unloving person of all. You and I need to tell the truth in love. And the truth is that Jesus and the gospel and the resurrection are the only way to the father. So Paul finishes up. I loved you. Kind of love me back. And shepherds who love their flocks and flocks who love their shepherds, they compound this joy that was meant to be in the body of Christ. You know, the church is supposed to be the antidote for everything that's wrong with the world. People should be able to come out of their dysfunctional families, their dysfunctional lives, and come into the church and find love and acceptance and brotherhood and sisterhood and, and uh, belonging, Amen. Hopefully that's why you're still here. It's not like, you know, you walked in and the usher said you're not dressed right and the preacher hammered on you for two and a half hours and you felt horrible when you left. Hopefully you're feeling the love of God while you're here, amen? And, and understand something, that we have to compound this love. We have to compound this joy, and we can do it by not just nitpicking at each other. There are no perfect pastors, and you say, we know, we've been listening to you for this amount of time, and we're, we're assured of that. And, and the newsflash for all of you out there, there are no perfect congregations. I sit with pastors, I have lunch with them, I go to pastoral meetings, and I hear about what some of these congregations do to their pastors, and I'm just going to say, I'm keeping you guys, okay? I'm like, my goodness. But we've got to overlook our differences. We've got to overlook you know, our limitations and our imperfections. When you and I can just look, that's pastor, you know, he's who he is. He's not perfect, but we love him. And I can look out there and go, those are the sheep and I love them. (laughs) You know, some of them are bad and some of them are good, but I love them. And all of a sudden now the the Bible says that love, what? Love overcomes and love, uh, what are you saying? Yes, love covers a multitude of sins. And all of a sudden, our love for each other allows our imperfections to be overlooked, and the body of Christ becomes what it's supposed to be. Now I'm going to close with this. Paul wants them to reciprocate. He loves them. Love me back. Lay your life down. Follow my example. Here, three things happen when we overlook each other's imperfections. Number one, joy within the body of Christ will begin to flow like a river if we'll stop judging each other and nitpicking each other and trying to get our own way and bucking for this and that, if we'll just love each other, joy will flow like a river at Full Gospel Center, amen? Our worship will explode. Uh, our altered time will explode. The preaching will hit the mark. People will leave refreshed if we'll overlook each other's perfections. Number two, we will become spiritually attractive to the lost. Lost people don't want to come to a place where they're judged, where they're hammered on, where they're not accepted, where there's little cliques. Like, you know, how many of you ever been to church where there's, there's this cliques that you, you can't get into? You know, you try, you try to get into this group and they turn their back and you try to get into this group and shake your hand and stand by yourself and drink your coffee. That's not what the body of Christ is supposed to be. I hope that we're, we're just, our arms are open here at Full Gospel Center, that we just love one another, amen. We don't have to think alike, look alike, you know, have the same opinions about everything. We just overlook those things and love each other. When that happens, we will become spiritually attractive to the lost because that's what people are looking for out there, a place where they can come just as they are to be loved and accepted and to come in and be part of the family. Come on. Some people don't have that. I look at young people growing up. They're they're all disconnected and in dysfunction, and the school systems are a mess, and life is hard, and the economy is terrible, and they got nothing. We're supposed to be spiritually attractive. Amen? People don't go to ugly churches. If you've been to an ugly church, you know you couldn't wait to get out of there. Number three, what happens when we overlook each other's imperfections? The devil and all our detractors lose traction against us completely. You see, if we'll just love each other and stop judging one another. Now, I'm not talking about tolerating sin. I'm not talking about explaining away behavior that the Bible says is wrong. That, that's not love. I'm talking about overlooking imperfections and all of us growing together sincerely in our faith. If we'll do that, we'll become uh, very attractive to the lost. The love is going to flow here, and it's going to attract people, and then our detractors are going to lose their traction. Why? Because what are they out there saying about the church? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. They're all judgmental. They're all this, and they're all that. And then we stop judging each other. We start loving each other, and the joy begins to flow. And they're they're like, well, they're, they're, they're not hypocrites anymore. Well, they're, they're not judging each other anymore. And then all of a sudden, they got no ammo to use against us. Our detractors have to walk away and say, well, I've I got nothing to say because there's just love there. There's just acceptance. Now, I know you might be sitting in there and go, Pastor, this is a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. There's always going to be people. Yeah, we're working on throwing them out. Just hang in there. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We're growing together, amen? People are looking around. Who is it? Who is it? Oh, that's probably him. I knew it was him. <laughs> you know, the enemy loses traction against us too because what he, he, hes the accuser of the brethren. Yeah, yeah. When we're doing wrong stuff, we're gossiping, we're talking about each other, we're murmuring about the pastor. If I was in control, I would have never did it that way. <laughs> Well, go start your own church and preach and get hundreds of people to come. Then you can do what you want, and God will judge you for it. But I'm doing the best I can, and hopefully you are too. So let's just love one another. But where there's love, where there's acceptance, where there's the joy of the Lord, the enemy has no traction. Paul was teaching them deep spiritual principles. He was modeling for them deep spiritual maturity. He was encouraging them to hold on tight to the things that really mattered. And he's doing the same for us today by the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads right now. Father, we thank you for this word from Philippians. We thank you for the epistle of joy. We thank you that we can learn how to have joy and to be loving and to just let the love flow even in life's toughest situations. Father, we realize it's dark out there, but the light penetrates the darkness. So teach us to let our light shine, Lord God. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to become spiritually attractive to a broken, hurting world so that they can come in and meet Jesus and receive the free gift of salvation and be part of the family. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Let's give him praise this morning. Amen.